Chapter Four of Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume Two, by Havelock Ellis. Chapter Four: Sexual Inversion in Women, Part One. Homosexuality is not less common in women than in men. In the seriocomic theory of sex set forth by Aristophanes in Plato's Symposium, males and females are placed on a footing of complete equality, and, however fantastic, the theory suffices to indicate that to the Greek mind, so familiar with homosexuality, its manifestations seem just as likely to occur in women as in men that is undoubtedly the case. Like other anomalies, indeed, in its more pronounced forms it may be less frequently met with in women. In its less pronounced forms, almost certainly, it is more frequently found. A Catholic confessor, a friend tells me, informed him that for one man who acknowledges homosexual practices there are three women. For the most part, feminine homosexuality runs everywhere a parallel course to masculine homosexuality, and is found under the same conditions. It is as common in girls as in boys. It has been found, under certain conditions, to abound among women in colleges and convents and prisons, as well as under the ordinary conditions of society. Perhaps the earliest case of homosexuality recorded in detail occurred in a woman, and it was with the investigation of such a case in a woman that Westphal may be said to have inaugurated the scientific study of inversion. Moreover, inversion is as likely to be accompanied by high intellectual ability in a woman as in a man. The importance of a clear conception of inversion is indeed in some respects, under present social conditions, really even greater in the case of women than of men. For if, as has sometimes been said of our civilization, this is a man's world, the large proportion of able women inverts, whose masculine qualities render it comparatively easy for them to adopt masculine avocations, becomes a highly significant fact. It has been noted of distinguished women in all ages and in all fields of activity that they have frequently displayed some masculine trades. Even the first great woman in history, as she has been called by a historian of Egypt, Queen Hatshepsut, was clearly of markedly virile temperament, and always had herself represented on her monuments in masculine costume, and even with a false beard. Other famous queens have on more or less satisfactory grounds been suspected of a homosexual temperament, such as Catherine II of Russia, who appears to have been bisexual, and Queen Christina of Sweden, whose very marked masculine traits and high intelligence seem to have been combined with a definitely homosexual or bisexual temperament. Great religious and moral leaders like Madame Blavatsky and Louise Michel have been either homosexual or bisexual, or at least of pronounced masculine temperament. Great actresses from the 18th century onward have frequently been more or less correctly identified with homosexuality, as also many women distinguished in other arts. Above all, Sappho, the greatest of women poets, the peer of the greatest poets of the other sex in the supreme power of uniting art and passion, has left a name which is permanently associated with homosexuality. 
it can scarcely be said that opinion is unanimous in regard to Sappho, and the reliable information about her, outside the evidence of the fragments of her poems which have reached us, is scanty. Her fame has always been great. In classic times her name was coupled with Homer's, but even to antiquity she was somewhat of an enigma, and many legends grew up around her name, such as the familiar story that she threw herself into the sea for the love of Phaon. What remains clear is that she was regarded with great respect and admiration by her contemporaries, that she was of aristocratic family, that she was probably married and had a daughter, that at one time she had to take her part in political exile, and that she addressed her girlfriends in precisely similar terms to those addressed by Alcaeus to youths. We know that in antiquity feminine homosexuality was regarded as especially common in Sparta, Lesbos, and Miletus. Horace, who was able to read Sappho's complete poems, states that the objects of her love-planes were the young girls of Lesbos, while Ovid, who played so considerable a part in weaving fantastic stories round Sappho's name, never claimed that he had any base of truth. It was inevitable that the early Christians should eagerly attack so ambiguous a figure, and Tatian, Horatio ad Grecos, chapter 52, reproached the Greeks that they honoured statues of the tribade Sappho, a prostitute who had celebrated her own wantonness and infatuation. The result is that in modern times there have been some who placed Sappho's character in a very bad light, and others who have gone to the opposite extreme in an attempt at rehabilitation. Thus W. Muir, in his History of the Language and Literature of Ancient Greece, 1854, Volume 3, pages 272 to 326 and 496 to 498, dealing very fully with Sappho, is disposed to accept many of the worst stories about her, though he has no pronounced animus, and, as regards female homosexuality, which he considers to be far more venial than male homosexuality, he remarks that, quote, in modern times it has numbered among its votaries females distinguished for refinement of manners and elegant accomplishments. Bascoul, on the other hand, will accept no statements about Sappho which conflict with modern ideals of complete respectability, and even seeks to rewrite her most famous ode in accordance with the colourless literary sense which he supposes that it originally bore. J. M. F. Bascoul, La Chaste Sappho et le Mouvement Féministe à Athènes. 1911. Vilamovitz Mullendorf, Sappho und Simonides, 1913, also represents the antiquated view, formerly championed by Welker, according to which the attribution of homosexuality is a charge of vice to be repudiated with indignation. Most competent and reliable authorities today, however, while rejecting the accretions of legend around Sappho's name, and not disputing her claim to respect, are not disposed to question the personal and homosexual character of her poems. Quote, All ancient tradition and the character of her extant fragments, says Professor J. A. Platt, Encyclopedia Britannica, 11th edition, Article Sappho, continued, quote, show that her morality was what has ever since been known as lesbian. End quote. What exactly that lesbian morality involved, we cannot indeed exactly ascertain. 
it is altogether idle as a croissant remarks of sappho histoire de la literature grecque volume two chapter five quote, to discuss the exact quality of this friendship or this love or to seek to determine with precision the frontiers which language itself often seems to seek to confuse of a friendship more or less aesthetic and sensual of a love more or less platonic End quote. see also j m edmonds sappho in the added lights of the new fragments nineteen twelve ivan bloch similarly concludes ursprung der syphilis volume two nineteen eleven page five o seven that sappho probably combined as modern investigation shows to be easily possible lofty ideal feelings with passionate sensuality exactly as happens in normal love it must also be said that in literature homosexuality in women has furnished a much more frequent motive to the artist than homosexuality in men among the greeks indeed homosexuality in women seldom receives literary consecration and in the revival of the classical spirit at the renaissance it was still chiefly in male adolescence as we see for instance in marino's adone that the homosexual ideal found expression after that date male inversion was for a long period rarely touched in literature save briefly and satirically while inversion in women becomes a subject which might be treated in detail and even with complacence many poets and novelists especially in france might be cited in evidence ariosto it has been pointed out has described the homosexual attractions of women diderot's famous novel la religieuse which when first published was thought to have been actually written by a nun deals with the torture to which a nun was put by the perverse lubricity of her abbess for whom it is said diderot found a model in the abbess of chelles a daughter of the regent and thus a member of a family which for several generations showed a marked tendency to inversion diderot's narrative has been described as a faithful description of the homosexual phenomena liable to occur in convents feminine homosexuality especially in convents was often touched on less seriously in the eighteenth century thus we find a homosexual scene in les plaisirs du cloître a play written in seventeen seventy three le théâtre d'amour en dix-huit siècles nineteen ten balzac who treated so many psychological aspects of love in a more or less veiled manner has touched on this in la fille aux yeux d'or in a vague and extravagantly romantic fashion gautier made the adventures of a woman who is predisposed to homosexuality and slowly realizes the fact the central motive of his wonderful romance mademoiselle de maupin eighteen thirty five he approached the subject purely as an artist and poet, but his handling of it shows remarkable insight. Gautier based his romance, to some extent, on the life of Madame Maupin, or, as she preferred to call herself, Mademoiselle Maupin, who was born in 1673, her father's name being Daubigny, dressed as a man, and became famous as a teacher of fencing, afterward as an opera singer. She was apparently of bisexual temperament, and her devotion to women led her into various adventures she ultimately entered a convent and died at the age of thirty-four with a reputation for sanctity e c clayton queens of song volume one pages fifty-two to sixty-one f Karsch, mademoiselle maupin jahrbuch für sexuelle schützenstufen volume five nineteen o three pages six nine four to seven o six 
A still greater writer, Flaubert, in Salambeau, 1862, made his heroine homosexual. Zola has described sexual inversion in Nona and elsewhere. Some thirty years ago, a popular novelist, A. Bellot, published a novel called Mademoiselle de Giraud, Ma Femme, which was much read. The novelist took the attitude of a moralist who is bound to treat frankly, but with all decorous propriety, a subject of increasing social gravity. The story is that of a man whose bride will not allow his approach, on account of her own liaison with a female friend continued after marriage. This book appears to have given origin to a large number of novels, some of which touched the question with considerable less affectation of propriety. Among other novelists who have dealt with the matter may be mentioned Guy de Maupassant, La Femme de Paul, Bourget, Crime d'Amour, Catel Mendes, Mephistophela, and Willie in the Claudine series. Among poets who have used the motive of homosexuality in women with more or less boldness may be found Lamartine, Regina, Swinburne, first series of poems and ballads, Verlain, Parallèlement, and Pierre-Louis, Chanson de Bilitie. The last-named book, a collection of homosexual prose poems, attracted considerable attention on publication, as it was an attempt at mystification, being put forward as a translation of the poems of a newly discovered Oriental Greek poetess. Bilitie, more usually Belti, is the Syrian name for Aphrodite. Les chansons de Bilitie are not without charm, but have been severely dealt with by Vilamovich Mullendorf, Sapphon Simonides, 1913, page 63 and further, as a travesty of Hellenism, betraying inadequate knowledge of Greek antiquity. More interesting, as the work of a woman who was not only highly gifted, but herself of homosexual temperament, are the various volumes of poems published by René Vivien. This lady, whose real name was Pauline Tan, was born in 1877. Her father was of Scotch descent, and her mother an American lady from Honolulu. As a child she was taken to Paris, and was brought up as a French girl. She travelled much, and at one time took a house at Mytilene, the chief city of ancient Lesbos. She had a love of solitude, hated publicity, and was devoted to her women friends, especially to one whose early death about 1900 was the great sorrow of Pauline Tan's life. She is described as very beautiful, very simple and sweet-natured, and highly accomplished in many directions. She suffered, however, from nervous overtension and incurable melancholy. Toward the close of her life she was converted to Catholicism, and died in 1909 at the age of thirty-two. She is buried in the cemetery at Passy. Her best verse is by some considered among the finest in the French language. Charles Brun, Pauline Tan, Notes and Queries, 22nd August 1914. The same writer who knew her well has also written a pamphlet, René Vivien, Saint-Sou, Paris, 1911. Her chief volumes of poems are Etu et Prélude, 1901, Cendre et Poussière, 1902, Avocations, 1903. A novel, Une femme m'apparue, 1904, is said to be to some extent autobiographical. René Vivien also wrote a volume on Sappho with translations, 
and a further volume of poems, Les Quitarides, suggested by the fragments which remain of the minor women poets of Greece, followers of Sappho. It is, moreover, noteworthy that a remarkably large proportion of the cases in which homosexuality has led to crimes of violence, or otherwise come under medico-legal observation, has been among women. It is well known that the part taken by women generally in open criminality, and especially in crimes of violence, is small as compared with men. In the homosexual field, as we might have anticipated, the conditions are to some extent reversed. Inverted men, in whom a more or less feminine temperament is so often found, are rarely impelled to acts of aggressive violence, though they frequently commit suicide. Inverted women, who may retain their feminine emotionality, combined with some degree of infantile impulsiveness and masculine energy, present a favourable soil for the seeds of passional crime, under those conditions of jealousy and allied emotions which must so often enter into the invert's life. The first conspicuous example of this tendency in recent times is the Memphis case, 1892, in the United States. Arthur MacDonald, Observation de sexualité pathologique féminine, Archive d'anthropologie criminelle, May 1895. See also Kraft Ebbing, Psychopathia sexualis, English translation of 10th edition, page 550. In this case, a congenital sexual invert, Alice Mitchell, planned a marriage with Frida Ward, taking a male name and costume. This scheme was frustrated by Frida's sister, and Alice Mitchell then cut Frida's throat. There is no reason to suppose that she was insane at the time of the murder. She was a typical invert of a very pronounced kind. Her mother had been insane and had homicidal impulses. She herself was considered unbalanced, and was masculine in her habits from her earliest years. Her face was obviously unsymmetrical, and she had an appearance of youthfulness below her age. She was not vicious, and had little knowledge of sexual matters, but when she kissed Frida she was ashamed of being seen, while Frida could see no reason for being ashamed. She was adjudged insane. There have been numerous cases in America more recently. One case, for some details concerning which I am indebted to Dr. J. G. Kernan of Chicago, is that of the Tiller sisters, two quintroons who for many years had acted together under that name in cheap theatres. One, who was an invert with a horror of men dating from early girlhood, was sexually attached to the other, who was without inborn inversion, and was eventually induced by a man to leave the invert. The latter, overcome by jealousy, broke into the apartment of the couple, and shot the man dead. She was tried and sent to prison for life. A defense of insanity was made, but for this there was no evidence. In another case, also occurring in Chicago, reported in Medicine, June 1899, and Alienist and Neurologist, October 1899, a trained nurse lived for fourteen years with a young woman who left her on four different occasions, but was each time induced to return. Finally, however, she left and married, whereupon the nurse shot the husband, who was not, however, fatally wounded. The culprit in this case had been twice married, but had not lived with either of her husbands. It was stated that her mother had died in an asylum, and that her brother had committed suicide. She was charged with disorderly conduct, 
and subjected to a fine. In another later case in Chicago, a Russian girl of twenty-two, named Anna Rubinovich, shot from motives of jealousy another Russian girl to whom she had been devoted from childhood, and then fatally shot herself. The relations between the two girls had been very intimate. "'Our love affair is one purely of the soul,' Anna Rubinovich was accustomed to say. Quote, "'We love each other on a higher plane than that of earth.'" I am informed that there were, in fact, physical relationships. The sexual organs were normal. This continued with great devotion on each side until Anna's sweetheart began to show herself susceptible to the advances of a male wooer. This aroused uncontrollable jealousy in Anna, whose father, it may be noted, had committed suicide by shooting some years previously. Homosexual relationships are also a cause of suicide among women. Such a case was reported in Massachusetts early in 1901. A girl of twenty-one had been tended during a period of nervous prostration, apparently of a hysterical nature, by a friend and neighbour, fourteen years her senior, married and having children. An intimate friendship grew up, equally ardent on both sides. The mother of the younger woman and the husband of the other took measures to put a stop to the intimacy, and the girl was sent away to a distant city. Stolen interviews, however, still occurred. Finally, when the obstacles became insurmountable, the younger woman bought a revolver and deliberately shot herself in the temple in presence of her mother, dying immediately. Though sometimes thought to act rather strangely, she was a great favourite with all, handsome, very athletic, fond of all outdoor sports, an energetic religious worker, possessing a fine voice, and was an active member of many clubs and societies. The older woman belonged to an aristocratic family and was loved and respected by all. In another case in New York in 1905, a retired sailor, Captain John Weed, who had commanded transatlantic vessels for many years, was admitted to a home for old sailors, and shortly after became ill and despondent and cut his throat. It was then found that Captain Weed was really a woman. I am informed that the old sailor's despondency and suicide were due to enforced separation from a female companion. The infatuation of young girls for actresses and other prominent women may occasionally lead to suicide. Thus in Philadelphia, a few years ago, a girl of nineteen, belonging to a very wealthy family, beautiful and highly educated, acquired an absorbing infatuation for Miss Mary Garden, the prima donna, with whom she had no personal acquaintance. The young girl would kneel in worship before the singer's portrait, and studied hairdressing and manicuring in the hope of becoming Miss Garden's maid. When she realized that her dream was hopeless, she shot herself with a revolver. Cases more or less resembling those here brought forward occur from time to time in all parts of the civilized world. Reports, mostly from current newspapers of such cases, as well as of simple transvestism or eonism, in both women and men, will be found in the publications of the Berlin Wissenschaftlich Humanitären Komitee, the Monatsberichte, up to 1909, then in the Viertaljahrsberichte, and from 1913 onward in the Jahrbuch für sexuelle Schüssenstufen. Yet, until recently, comparatively little has been known of sexual inversion in women. Even so lately as 1901, after the publication of the first edition of the present study, Kraft Ebbing wrote that scarcely fifty cases had been recorded. The chief monographs devoted but little space to women. 
Krafft Ebbing himself, in the earlier editions of Psychopathia Sexualis, gave little special attention to inversion in women, although he published a few cases. Moll, however, included a valuable chapter on the subject in his Contraire Sexualempfindung, narrating numerous cases, and inversion in women also received special attention in the present study. Hirschfeld, however, in his Homosexualität, 1914, is the first authority who has been able to deal with feminine homosexuality as completely coordinate with masculine homosexuality. The two manifestations, masculine and feminine, are placed on the same basis and treated together throughout the work. It is no doubt not difficult to account for this retardation in the investigation of sexual inversion in women. Notwithstanding the severity with which homosexuality in women has been visited in a few cases, for the most part men seem to have been indifferent toward it. When it has been made a crime or a cause for divorce in men, it has usually been considered as no offence at all in women. Another reason is that it is less easy to detect in women. We are accustomed to a much greater familiarity and intimacy between women than between men, and we are less apt to suspect the existence of any abnormal passion. And, allied with this cause, we have also to bear in mind the extreme ignorance and the extreme reticence of women regarding any abnormal or even normal manifestation of their sexual life. A woman may feel a high degree of sexual attraction for another woman without realizing that her affection is sexual, and when she does realize this, she is nearly always very unwilling to reveal the nature of her intimate experience, even with the adoption of precautions, and although the fact may be present to her that, by helping to reveal the nature of her abnormality, she may be helping to lighten the burden of it on other women. Among the numerous confessions voluntarily sent to Kraft Ebbing, there is not one by a woman. There is again the further reason that well-marked and fully developed cases of inversion are probably rarer in women, though a slighter degree may be more common, in harmony with the greater affectability of the feminine organism to slight stimuli, and its lesser liability to serious variation. The same aberrations that are found among men are, however, everywhere found among women. Feminine inversion has sometimes been regarded as a vice of modern refined civilization. Yet it was familiar to the Anglo-Saxons, and Theodore's penitential in the seventh century assigned a penance of three years, considerably less than that assigned to men, or for bestiality, to a woman fornicated with a woman. Among the women of savages in all parts of the world homosexuality is found, though it is less frequently recorded than among men. In New Zealand it is stated on the authority of Murenhout, though I have not been able to find the reference, that the women practised lesbianism. In South America, where inversion is common among men, we find similar phenomena in women. Among Brazilian tribes, Gandavo wrote, quote, There are certain women among these Indians who determine to be chaste and know no man. These leave every womanly occupation and imitate the men. They wear their hair the same way as the men. They go to war with them, or hunting, bearing their bows. They continue always in the company of men, and each has a woman who serves her and with whom she lives." This has some analogy with the phenomena seen among North American men. Dr. Holder, who has carefully studied the beauté, tells me that he has met no corresponding phenomena in women. There is no doubt, however, that homosexuality among women is well known to the American Indians in various regions. Thus the Salish Indians of British Columbia have a myth of an old woman 
who had intercourse with a young woman by means of a horn used as a penis. In the mythology of the Assiniboine Indians, of Canada and Montana, and the Fox Indians, of Iowa, there are also legends of feminine homosexuality, supposed to have been derived from the Algonquin Cree Indians, who were closely connected with both. End of chapter 4, part 1